0: Please turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. We are finishing out the book of Ecclesiastes tonight. Uh, I went back and looked as a lot of the books that we've been through have taken us quite a while and perhaps where we've taken bigger chunks within this particular book it's only been about five months. So that's kind of a a uh, short time span but there has been numerous things that have been covered in this book as, as Solomon uh, really asks a lot of the questions that we desire to ask he brings to light a number of situations that we find ourselves in thoughts that go through our own mind thinking how can things be this way what is the point of it all everything in life just seems to be repetitive he really gives us, a, um, overall, a, a, a picture, really, of life without God. And yet, at the very same time as you're seeing the hopelessness that is included in all that, yet we find ourselves also being affected in such a way. Perhaps not to um, have such hopelessness that we fall into despair as perhaps the unbelieving would, But we do find ourselves asking the same questions that Solomon has been bringing to light throughout this book. And tonight, we're finishing up chapter 12, verses 9 to 14. Really giving a summary of the book, a conclusion to the book, after addressing again numerous things. And his, his conclusion, after going over as many different scenarios as he has... Even including, you know, government, including uh, personal life, including funerals, including parties, and everything growing old, everything that he's gone over. Working with your hands, laboring with your hands, loving your spouse. What is the conclusion of it all? What, what What is the thing that holds it all together? And that's where he gives us the conclusion here in chapter 12 of the meaning of it all. The purpose, which is to fear God and to keep His commandments. It seems so simple. Because it is. It is simple. We complicate it a lot. Because we don't keep this as as the first and foremost uh, priority in our life, which is to fear God and keep His commandments. The theologian John Murray He says, the fear of God is the soul of godliness. This book has been leading to this very truth, this very reality. Every scenario that we have found within this book, what has given it meaning, what has given life meaning, what has given purpose to anything that we have read thus far is this truth. Fear God and keep his commandments. That's why as we've been working our way through uh, this book of wisdom, that that this is exactly what's been given to us, is wisdom. Wisdom to affect change in us. To make things clearer for us. To give us the, the right heading as far as the priorities that we should have in life. To put our heart and soul in what it is that we do for the Lord. Recognizing that this is the purpose of it all. One writer says this, The reader whose life is not changed in some way from studying Ecclesiastes has clearly not grasped its message. The preacher has put his heart and soul into wrestling with the reality of God, his creation, his works of providence, mankind's fall into sin, the sorrows and joys of living in a broken world, and the hope of an ultimate end of all things that will be better than their beginning. This is not a book to read dispassionately. That was a wonderful Summary of this book. We're going to try to unpack exactly what does it mean to fear the Lord. Because Solomon repeats that for us also in Proverbs. The the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What does that mean? We think of fear. We think of something that we're in terror of. That we have dread concerning. What does it mean to fear God? What does it bring about in us, this fear of God? What are the reasons given To fear God. And that's a lot of what Solomon is bringing to light for us tonight. Concluding this book with the ultimate priority. Fearing God and keeping His commandments. If you would, let us stand together for the reading of God's word. And we are reading verse 9 through verse 14 of chapter 12. Of God's holy inspired inerrant, authoritative, infallible word. Let us give our attention to the Holy Scripture. In addition, in addition to being a wise man, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, and he pondered, searched out, and arranged many proverbs. The preacher sought to find delightful words and to write words of truth correctly. The words of wise men are like goads, and masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. They are given by one shepherd. But beyond this, my son, be warned. The writing of many books is endless, and excessive devotion to books is wearying to the body. The conclusion, when all has been heard, is fear God and keep His commandments, because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. For your word, and thank you for all that you reveal through your word. Father, we pray that as we conclude this book tonight, that our hearts would would yearn for more, delight in what it is that we read, and delight in carrying it out, having such a conviction to live a life that is pleasing to you, for that is what you have called us to, to live a life delighting in you. Father, we pray that You would guide our thoughts tonight and bring this passage, Father, to to our hearts, give us understanding, Um, affect change in us, Father, by the Spirit of God. We love you because you first loved us. In Jesus' name we pray and all of God's children said, Amen. Please be seated. In the summary of the book here, he starts speaking in the third person, which has led some to believe that perhaps someone else is concluding the book, really not Solomon. That's something that you can go and study. Uh, I think it is Solomon concluding his book. It has been Solomon throughout the entirety of the book, and of course he is leading to this conclusion. And so I do believe uh, wholeheartedly that this is indeed Solomon. Solomon. He really, <clears throat> in these first couple of verses here, he's really bringing to light exactly what wisdom does. Wisdom isn't just something, it's not knowledge, it's, it's not something that you, you just gain a whole bunch of, of, of data. Wisdom is, is put into practice in your life, it, it is to affect something in your life. And everything that we have been reading thus far is to do that very thing, to affect change in your life. Solomon has studied relentlessly and he has sought to understand truth through the various things that he has laid his eyes on concerning his own life, concerning the things that he sees in his kingdom. What is the meaning of it all? It's all vanity of vanities. You live a life, you keep doing the same thing over and over again. What gives it meaning? What is, what is, the, what is the purpose? What, what does it accomplish if you live your life toiling with your hands just to get riches? Or honor, and then you die. It's gonna be left for someone else who's probably gonna mismanage it. And so everything that you just did was for naught. So, what gives it purpose? What is all this about? Solomon has sought to study all of this, to understand this truth, and we are receiving here the, the understanding that this has been wisdom. He has searched out all of this, he's taught the people knowledge. He's arranged many Proverbs. We can go to the Proverbs. You you see very clearly a number of things that are similar to the book of Ecclesiastes on a practical level, even more so within the book of Proverbs. It is true wisdom from God, and he alludes to that in verse 11. Solomon's personal study in all of this, he sought to find delightful words and the right words of truth correctly, Here's what he says, though, in verse 11. He says, the words of wise men are like goads. Now, just that statement alone is, is giving us the understanding that this wisdom, these words that he writes of, of wise men concerning himself, it is to affect change the things that we learn within the word of God, even as a whole, not just in the book of Ecclesiastes, but everything that is learned through the word of God is to affect change in the people of God. We learn this. We understand this. This is pleasing to God. This is what gives life meaning. And then it affects changing us to carry out these very things because we see the meaning of it. We see the value. And that's Solomon saying, the words of wise men are like goads. It's like a a long staff with a nail at the end and it keeps us going in the right direction just as a shepherd guides the sheep to go in the desired direction that he wants them to go. That's what wisdom does. It guides. One writer says this, words of wisdom affect change. Sometimes God's wisdom is painful but necessary to receive. Going through the book of Ecclesiastes, I can see a number of places, even in my own life, where I'm studying and I'm going over a number of different things for, for our lessons on Wednesday night. And, and in my heart, I'm saying, ouch. Hmm. That wasn't what I was expecting. I would, have, I would have liked it if it was something different. But this is what God said. And then the heart des- desires then to carry out what God said, because it's right. And so even going through the book of Ecclesiastes, everything that we have read thus far has, is to affect change. This is the direction you're going. You see that God says something different than the way that you're going, and therefore God's wisdom guides you then to go and walk in paths of righteousness for His name's sake, not our own. It is painful at times. It does make us say in our hearts, that hurt. Because I've been doing something different. My thoughts have been something different. I even perhaps thought I was in the right concerning this particular topic. And then all of a sudden, the words of the Lord come in, and you think, hmm, boy, I've had that wrong. Then what, what, what occurs? There's a change. There's a change at least in the hearts of the people of God who desire to please God. Wisdom affects change. That's what this book has been. Affecting change in the people of God and how they view things. How they view the world. How they view God. How they view creation. How they view the things that they do every single day of the week. That seem to be empty and meaningless. Well, reading Ecclesiastes Solomon grabs a hold of you and says, no, look at this closer. Understand exactly what's happening here. And so the preacher turns our attention back to where it needs to be. And sometimes it is painful, but it produces stability. The words of wise men are like goads. It hurts. It's painful at times. But he says, and masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. And some commentators would say that this is implying that a well-driven nail is stable. It produces stability. So that in some of the circumstances that we find our own selves in, as Solomon has been bringing us through, that we don't fall into despair. We don't fall into hopelessness. We don't look at life and say, this is absurd. It's all meaningless. We're stable. We're on stable ground because of the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God keeps us from, from falling into error, from falling into the mindset that we find so many unbelievers in. You think of some of the atheistic existential philosophers of the early, earliest, early 20th, 20th century, like Albert Camus. Uh, Jean-Paul Sartre writing about how existence itself is absurd. It's all absurd. The fact that we exist. Now, what makes them fall into that kind of despair? Because they're living a life without God. And a life without God leads into that. At least they were somewhat honest in in at least their findings. As Jean-Paul Sartre said that in in the end, man is nothing more than a useless passion all he is that's not what Solomon says Solomon doesn't present existence in in that kind of language he doesn't talk about the absurdity of us existing he's talking about existing for for the glory of another and the glory of another is our highest priority and this is what gives life meaning it gives the daily things that you do, that you do every single day, same routine. It gives everything that you do purpose and meaning and value. So we don't fall into despair. We don't fall into hopelessness. We don't, we're, we're not cynics. We see that life has meaning and that everything that we do has meaning, and we can take pleasure in everything that we're doing because we're viewing everything in life that that God has given as that, a gift of God. It is a gift of God. Your friends, your family, those around you, your church, your house, everything that you have is a gift from God, and it is to be enjoyed. It is to be enjoyed. What a lesson that that has been, especially through this book. You know, a lot of times, as we've talked about, a lot of times it, during the work day, you're just you know on autopilot. Just getting through the day so that you can be done and then go do something enjoyable. Or what we think will be enjoyable, which is usually just sitting and going. But, but then Solomon... He comes alongside and says, enjoy the work of your hands. Enjoy your labor. Sit back and enjoy it. Because it's a gift from God. God has given this to you in your life to enjoy. Again, coming alongside us, turning our attention off of the things that are just so mundane or that we view in that kind of a way and saying, see? Look at what God has done in your life. Look at what He has given you in your life. So that when the hard times come, and and those that have been mentioned even in the book of Ecclesiastes, we have this understanding of the sovereignty of God, of life being a gift from God, of even things that occur within our life being for purpose. And so while it's not enjoyable to go through suffering and pain, yet at the very same time, our minds are centered upon the one who rules all things to keep us stable and to keep us in check. Lord, I don't understand, but you do. That's what I'm trusting in. And So wisdom, the wisdom of Scripture, is like a well-driven nail as it keeps us stable. And here's what he says, though. He says, they are given by one shepherd, even affirming the inspiration of the Scripture, of his book. One shepherd. These words of wisdom are given by one shepherd who cares for the sheep. The shepherd has given us understanding of who he is and of his works of providence and of creation. And to tell us how life is going to be. And yet at the very same time to tell us even though life can be this way. And at other times, we would look and say, life is unfair. The Lord comes along and says, life is going to be this way. And yet, I'm the one who is ruling it all. And it has purpose and meaning in your life. So in light of the terrible things that are occurring in the nation or in the world, there is still that element of being able to have joy in what God has given to you in your life. The shepherd has given. The shepherd has given his word. Now, not only to affect change of uh, this wisdom, but it also produces something within us. The change, in particular, is what he then goes into. In verse 12, he says, But beyond this, my son, be warned. The writing of many books is endless, and excessive devotion to books is wearying to the body. And in one sense, you're looking at this saying, everything that he has written about, everything, every scenario that he has written about, there's going to be many books that are written on this, but this is sufficient. You don't have to weary yourself with these other books. Why is it sufficient? Because it's from one shepherd. The shepherd of our souls. You can read a lot of books and it'd be wearying to the soul. Be warned of that. But this is sufficient. This is sufficient to guide you. This is sufficient to give you joy in your life. This is sufficient to to make you stable in life, even with the various things that come. But the conclusion to all these sayings and all these scenarios that he has brought about is this. When all has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments. This is what it all leads to. Fear God and keep His commandments. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to fear God? Well, there are <clears throat> various ideas uh, or various uses of this word, at least in our English, of fear. You know, fear, we think of, of fear and we, we think it um, it's something to be frightened of. It's something that causes terror. It's something that... Uh, that, that brings um, dread. Interestingly, when you look on uh, Merriam-Webster's dictionary uh, website and you look up this word, as a noun, it means an unpleasant emotion caused by the belief that someone or something is dangerous, likely to cause pain or a threat. As a verb, it means to be afraid of something as likely to be dangerous, painful, or threatening. Interestingly, on Merriam-Webster. It also says, speaking of God, great reverence and awe for God. So it has these, these other meanings here. And we think of a, you know a, a terrible storm coming in and we're afraid. We're fearful. But we're not drawn to the storm. But yet, when it comes to the Lord what causes fear in the sense of reverence and awe at the the same time. Now, that's very interesting on how that can be. What does it mean then? Uh, Because some have viewed uh, fear of God in an unhealthy way, having an unhealthy fear. And even the Greek word that's in the New Testament, phobos, where we get the word phobia, it can carry both meanings, an unhealthy fear, or it can mean great reverence and awe for the Lord. So what does it mean then when believers are commanded to fear the Lord? And not only that, but the desire of God is for His people to fear Him. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, we read in verse 28 and 29, The Lord heard the voice of your words when you spoke to me, and the Lord said to me, I have heard the voice of the words of this people, which they have spoken to you, they have done well, and that they have spoken. Oh, that they had such a heart in them, that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always, that it may be well with them and with their sons forever. This is what the Lord says of his people, oh, that they would fear me, that they had a heart to fear me. What does that mean? Well, again, um, Christians throughout the history have really distinguished between two kinds of fear. One is a childlike fear and the other is a servile slavish fear. The servile slavish fear views God with only dread and terror, uh, like an unpardoned sinner who views God as a tyrannical uh, master uh, who you have to try to please with, with some kind of work or sacrifice Uh, And you see even throughout the the pagan religions of them making sacrifices, uh, sacrificing kids and all of this. Why? Because they think they have to uh, satisfy something in that particular God, that he would be good to them. You see, uh, we've been talking in, in Romans, we've been talking about Martin Luther a little bit. You see this kind of fear even in the life of Luther when he began as an Augustinian monk up until the time of his conversion. What was he doing? The justice of God he hated every time that he heard about the justice of God because he knew his standing before God, he knew he couldn't be just, he knew he couldn't be righteous, and he knew the judgment of God was upon him, and he couldn't do anything about it. He couldn't beat himself enough. He couldn't cause himself enough pain. So he had that kind of servile, slavish fear of God during the years before his conversion. As a monk, as a representative of the church. But then you have the childlike fear. The childlike fear, it draws the soul to the Lord. Again, reverence and awe. It constrains adoration and love and worship, reverence and honor at the highest, as Dr. Joe Beeky says. John Murray, he says this, True fear of God is the reflex in our consciousness of the transcendent majesty and holiness of God. That fear that we're talking about, that childlike fear, is, is, is like similar to your parent. You have a, a fear of your dad, and yet you love your dad at the very same time. You have a, a respect for him. A reverence, this is your dad. And, but you have great affection. Great love. That's the kind of fear that is being referred to here. You know, in the New Testament, especially when you read of Gentile uh, proselytes uh, to, to Judaism, they would be called God-fears, right? That was their name. That's how they were known. He was a godfearer, Cornelius. And then you read something that we have already been over in in Romans chapter one. A godfearer is one who has embraced the Lord, been converted to the Jewish faith, all of that in the New Testament. But listen to what he says in Romans chapter 1 that we've already been over. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his namesake. The obedience of faith. Now he's going into, Solomon is, he's going into fear God and keep his commandments. Fear God, have all for him, reverence for him, honor and keep his commandments, be obedient. And yet the apostle Paul talks about The obedience of faith among the Gentiles. So there are a few theologians that would make that connection with fear and faith. The two being very closely connected. That fear equals faith. It really begins with an attitude, fear does, of an attitude of of delight of love, of trust, an attitude of submission, a dependence upon, worship of the Lord. Uh, one writer says uh, those very words. He says fear refers simply to an attitude of submission to respect for, dependence on, and worship of the Lord, a trembling trust. That's how he defined it. A trembling trust. Another writer says, to fear God embodies faith and hope in God as well as a genuine love for Him. We don't think of fear in our normal use of it in this kind of a way. And one reason being is the only one that we are to fear in this way is God. You know, we talk about the word awesome. Awesome. I think Nehemiah uses that in his in his prayer in Nehemiah chapter 1 the awesome God something that causes awe and terror at the same time You're you're you you have that that reverence for him that that fear and yet you're drawn to him the soul is delighting in him That's the kind of fear that's being referred to that that faith that trust in him that confidence in him and then that produces so many other things within the life of the believer, which is the submission to him and and the dependence upon him, and then the obedience. Then the obedience to him. Except this obedience, as we've been talking about, this obedience is not a servile, slavish obedience that we have to do these things or he's going to be angry with us. We have to satisfy his anger. Only Christ can do that. We can't do that. Only Christ can do that. So we don't view God in that that kind of a tyrannical uh, master, dictator. We recognize very clearly that God is the ruler of all things, that he is the great king. That he sits on his cosmic throne and he rules and he reigns and he does whatever he pleases in heaven and on earth. And in one sense that can cause a little bit of, of fear in the sense that, oh, Lord, you can do anything you want. You know, I was reading um, an article by Tim Challies, and he said that one thing that had come about whenever their 21 year old son had died was the realization that God can do anything that he wants to do. It made it more real. Why? Because he's God. He rules over the heavens, he rules over the realm of earth. He can do whatever he wants. So there is that understanding, yes. He is the ruler of it all. And yet there is again that great reverence for him that delights in him where the soul delights in him and desires to do what is right to please him, to show our love, to show our appreciation, to show our adoration. Not the servile kind of obedience, that obedience that that really produces a delight. What are we obeying? We're obeying His commandments. Again, Solomon is not saying anything that any other writer of the Old Testament especially has been saying, but then the writers of the New Testament say. Even Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. That's what He said in John 14. So it's the same and if we say, "Well, your your commandments are, they're just it's too hard. It's too constricting on my life." Like, what exactly are we talking about? What kind of commandments did God give that are that 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 we would look at Him and say, "Lo, oh, Lord, you're just a cosmic killjoy." What kind of commandments are we talking about? You know, the other day, and this is probably boring to some and it's probably why I'm a nerd but I went through I went through Exodus chapter 20 through 25 26 Leviticus chapter 18 through chapter 26 I think and then Deuteronomy chapter 14 through the upper 20s everywhere where law was given and i read those specific passages at least eight to ten times going over them going over them going over them and i would write them down like okay what are we talking about we keep we keep saying these words that certain parts of the law don't apply only the moral law of the ten commandments is applying it's like well what are we talking about And so I made a list at the top of my little paper. I put sexual immorality and I went through every passage and I wrote down one sentence of what it was referring to in the passage and two sheets of paper for just sexual immorality. Then I wrote murder, manslaughter, stealing, theft theft of possessions, theft of people, anything that had to do with stealing, anything that had to do with lying and bearing false witness, anything that had to do with generosity. What are we to do towards one another? And there was a big list of what it is to be generous, to be good to one another. How about violence? I went through all these. And so I have, I don't know, seven, eight pages of just these particular things concerning the law. And I'm looking at them going, these... These are for the protection of people. These are good. These are good things. And yet we look at the law and we say, that's just too binding on me. It's like, well, exactly which one of these things are you wanting to do that you can't do? Because if you want to do any of these, we we probably need to talk. Because this is bad. What are we talking about? We're talking about loving our neighbor and loving God. When Jesus says that the commandments are summed up in two, he didn't say the Ten Commandments are summed up in two. He said all the law and the prophets are summed up in two, which is to love the Lord. And to love your neighbor as yourself. How do you define what that is? You look to the law. What does he say? How am I to be? In what way am I to love my neighbor? Well, I don't, I don't wrong them in these particular ways. I, I, I want to be generous with what God has given. I want to help people. I mean, something as simple as if you're walking down the road and you see an, even an enemy... If you see his donkey under a load and he can't get up, don't ignore it. Help the animal up. I mean, is, is that so constricting? <laughs> I mean, I think we need to reevaluate exactly what we're talking about when when we, we, when we say things like that. Because Solomon is saying that this is what it is in order to walk before the Lord in, in, in righteousness and holiness, which is taking, we can't, Take everything verbatim. But we can take the principles of the things that are taught there to understand how we are to be to one another and to live in such a way that we are not offending one another, that we are not causing each other harm and pain and to walk before the Lord, to value Him, not committing any idolatrous things. We are fearing God alone because His interests are above ours. His happiness is above my happiness. His joy is above mine. His sorrow is above my sorrow. Whatever causes him sorrow, I want that to be uh, my focus. That's what the Puritans said. This is what it is to fear God and to keep his commandments. Not out of a duty of salvation, but because this is good. You know it's good. And so recognizing what goodness God has shown us, it's like, what can I do to show you my love for you? Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. His yoke is easy, his burden is light. So having that fear of God, that delight of the soul, produces in us Obedience. How may I walk before you? That is that is one, one thing that we need to recognize is that that fear of God produces joy. It produces joy and obedience. But he goes on to say this. It's fear of God, keep His commandments because this applies to every person. But then he says this. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. So while we have the one side of it, we have joy in keeping the commandments of God, because our soul delights in Him, yet there's the recognition too. There's going to be a judgment. Now we don't, here's the thing that we need to understand too. We need to understand that the judgment for the believer is done. The judgment for the believer is done. This is what bothers me about uh, the way the churches bring about or or talk about uh, the judgment of believers. Imagine you're standing there before the Lord and, and he starts playing everything. Everything that you've ever done, every sin that you have committed. And what does that cause? Well, obviously, on the part of the believer, that's going to cause sorrow, recognizing how greatly a sinner uh, that I had been and sinning against the Lord in such a way. But Revelation says there's no tears. The tears are wiped away. The Scriptures. The scriptures tell us that Christ is our propitiation. He took the wrath of God. He satisfied the justice of God. Our sins are wiped clean. So if the sins are wiped clean, then what basis do we have of telling people every sin that you've ever done is going to come up at the judgment? That just doesn't add up. So for the judgment of the believer, your sins have been dealt with, and they were dealt with by Christ. But yet the scripture still says to us, I believe it's in James, to live as those who would be judged by the law. So when we stand before God in the judgment, the judgment for the believer has to do with the rewards. Either the rewards that you get, or the rewards you don't. But for the unbeliever, that is a cause of terror. Because there will be a judgment. And the judgment for the believer is much different than what it's going to be for the unbeliever. Because the unbeliever will have everything that they have done. That is true of them. Not necessarily that it's going to be replayed, but the one who knows all things knows exactly the crimes of this particular one. And they will be judged accordingly. That's, that is a cause of fear. That is a reality of what will happen. And so, as Solomon is bringing this every act to judgment, it's going to happen. We recognize the difference between the unbeliever and the believer. <clears throat> then the things that we do in obedience to the Lord and delighting in Him, interestingly, for the believer, you get a reward for that. Does that make any sense? Because even the Apostle Paul says, speaking of himself with all the other apostles, I labored more than all of them. Yet it wasn't me, but the grace of God in me. And yet, he's he, he he speaks of the, the crown of life that he's he he will receive upon his departure, and it's like how does that even work? Is anything good that we ever do is because of the Lord anyway? And again, just showing the generous nature of God. I'm really giving you something I did. That's amazing, but because God is gracious. And he lavishes on us the riches of his grace. Then the things that we do in service to the Lord and delighting in him. That he says, in due time you will reap if you do not grow weary. So there is that that element of what the judgment is for the believer. Recognizing that this is going to happen. So what then do you do? You don't want to be slack concerning the things that you do for the Lord. You want to take heaven by storm. Just like Thomas Watson said in his book. Heaven taken by storm. It was a wonderful book. He goes into Matthew 11. For the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and violent men take it by force. Kingdom of Heaven can't suffer violence from anyone. It's Kingdom of Heaven. But as Watson points out, this is speaking of believers. With everything that is in them, in view of eternity, giving everything that they can in service to the one who saved them and bestowed such grace upon them. So recognizing there's a judgment for you in that kind of a manner. Cultivates in a even greater, should cultivate in us an even greater desire to live for the honor and the glory of God but for the unbeliever that's a whole different story and the unbeliever needs to understand this very truth is going to come for them as well but this is where life is summed up how's the judgment going to go? do you fear God? did you delight in God? are you saved by god the de- the destinies of all human human beings everywhere is contingent upon this what did you do with christ did you love him delight in him reverence him trust in him first and foremost or did you do like many of these others within ecclesiastes and live a life of absurdity thinking that there's no meaning to it and there is no god it really sums up all of it in these last few verses of what encompasses all of life what it is what's it all centered on and it's all centered on god for the believer for the unbeliever for us who take delight this is the sum of it all your life is not meaningless your life is not absurd Your life has value. Your life has meaning. Even though at times we say life just doesn't seem to be fair. Um, Though it's kind of a cliche, it is a true statement. The Lord never said life would be fair. But what he does promise is, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. You're mine. And I have something better for you than this. And so everything that you do then in life, you recognize the sovereignty of God. You recognize the continued presence of God with you. You recognize that everything that you do have in your life is a blessing from God. It's a gift of God and you can enjoy it while you have opportunity. And so that's where Solomon really shakes us up and says, Do you enjoy your life in God? Do you take delight in the life that God has given you and the things that God has given you do you see it as a gift or do you see it as a burden? How do you view God's life that he's given you? That's the question. And this book is shaking us up to say, to say I should be viewing it as a great blessing from God. I should be enjoying the people in my life I should be enjoying, you know, we, we come together and we have a good time with one another. Why? Because it's a gift of God people being placed within others' life and them in yours. We enjoy our families. We enjoy the work of our hands. We enjoy the privilege of studying and learning. We enjoy the, the view of everything that we see out in the creation, recognizing that it was from God. There is so much in life to enjoy rather than only focusing on the negative things and thinking that it's unfair and it's all meaningless. God says, it's not. For I'm working. I'm strengthening your faith. And I'm pointing you with my wisdom in the scripture in the direction that I want you to go. So when it's all said and done, as many books have been written, we only need Ecclesiastes. When all has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments. That's your wisdom among others. That's your joy in life. That's what gives everything else meaning. And I pray that we would all heed those words. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your your word, for this portion of your word. Thank you that you are our greatest treasure. As we come to understand you as much as we can, this uh, continued journey of coming to understand you, of learning of you, of coming to know you even more intimately every day of our life, Father, it is uh, just just—it is amazing. It is such a delight to see your hand in all things. Even in our pain, we can see your hand, which gives us comfort, which encourages our hearts, that you know well the hurt that we feel and the pain that we feel, the anxieties that we feel. And yet at the very same time, us having that recognition of you and your sovereignty it does bring comfort to us. I pray that you would increase your fear in us. That we would delight so much more in you. Delight in your word. Delight in learning. Delight in applying the things that we learn from Scripture by the Spirit of God. Father, we want to live a life that's pleasing to you. That's honoring to you just to have just a small degree of showing you how appreciative we are. We can never compare to the gifts that you lavish on us. Father, thank you for just the privilege that we have of of having that opportunity to show you our love. And I pray that you'd grow our love. We recognize we don't love you as we should. We love you imperfectly. But we look forward to the day in which we will love you in the way that you should be loved. We long for that. We're unable to do it now, but thank you that one day we will do it right. Work in our hearts, continually bring about change in us for your honor and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's children said, amen. Thank you for your attention, and you are dismissed.